Reflections on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 7 So, now I know that you are truly my God. For you cannot possibly be the God of those whose deeds are the most horrible expression of a militant absence of God. To which uh, Francis Joseph Van Beek says, the definitive justice that is achieved by God comes about not by the crushing of all injustice, but by God taking it on, that is to say, taking on the injustice and absorbing it and out-suffering it. That is to say, final justice will reveal a God who is the God of the just and the unjust alike. In other words, Christians believe that God can, after all, be the God of those whose deeds are the most horrible expression of ungodliness. Now, what again, what does that mean? Had the Pharaoh's heart not been hardened, no exodus, no promise, no covenant, no Israel, no Bible, no revelation. Had the prophets not been opposed by their people, no prophetic voice, no prophetic residue in the biblical literature. Uh, no, I mean, you could, you know, God can do anything, but you could say, okay, no John the Baptist, no Jesus, no revelation. Without the rejection of the Jews, by Jesus, rejecting Jesus in, in the crucifixion and rejecting the gospel message, uh, the 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 gospel would have remained within the Jewish orbit. It would never have searched out its own universality. It would never have explored. I say never. This is ridiculous. Who knows what would have happened? But the point is, the role of opposition was very profound. And Paul uses the, the one metaphor he uses, which is a convoluted one, but I think it's very successful, is he says, the Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it, as it is written, Look, I'm setting in Zion a stone to stumble against, a rock to trip over, and no one who believes in him shall be put to shame. And he conflates two passages in Isaiah, and they're conflated even more elaborately in 1 Peter. So I want to read the passage in 1 Peter and then, and then comment on it. Here's how it goes in 1 Peter. Now I am laying a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, and no one who relies on this will be brought to disgrace. To you believers it brings honor, but for unbelievers it is rather a stone which the builders rejected that became the cornerstone, a stumbling stone, a rock to trip people up. They stumble over it because they do not believe in the word. It was the fate in store for them. I know how complicated and, and opaque this must seem. But here you have this image which is the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone for something totally new, and the stumbling block at the same time, or alternately. And now, what does this mean anthropologically? The builders always reject, the, anthropologically, if Gerard's theory of culture formation is correct, and I think it is, that culture always comes together in the first instance in its act of expelling the scapegoat, that the first camaraderie is born of that moment of uniting against the victim. That's the beginning of all culture. 
All culture begins there. All culture is built on throwing out the stone. The stone the builders rejected. Building consists of rejecting that stone, anthropologically, if you see what I mean. Rejecting that stone is the quintessential act of culture building. Okay? So now we have the stone that the builders rejected is the victim. Suddenly becomes the cornerstone and the stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to those who, who, who cannot accept it, who cannot see it, on whom the revelation has not broken in. And it's a stumbling block. And that's true of all of us just as much as the cornerstone is true of all of us. Uh, and, it's a, and it's a cornerstone for those who, on whom the revelation has broken in. Let me go back. I'm going to wrap it up. But, and you think, how could he wrap it up? He promised to make this thing a little clearer than it is. Uh, I want to go back. I think this may help. I want to go back to Stephen's speech. We started with Stephen's speech, the first session on Romans, because it's so essential for understanding Paul's conversion, I think. And the, a pivotal passage in the speech deals with the the uh, relationship between social opposition and the prophetic voice. Stephen says, Can you name a single prophet your ancestors never persecuted? Now, why is that? Why, why, why is this? This is a refrain, both in the Old and New Testaments, that the, pro- that, that the people always persecuted the prophets. And the romantic view of that is that, well, people always persecute the, the good people, you know, the good die young or something like that. The good people are always held in contempt or something. But I think we should go beneath that. I would say the prophetic voice is awakened in the one who is experiencing social rejection. You see what I mean? It's not, it's like the chicken and egg, which comes first. It's not that the prophet comes along and he's got it all figured out and he says it and everybody says, boo, go home. It's that the boos start somewhere back earlier in the process and the prophetic voice comes as a as, in some kind of strange tension with that social opposition in other words the biblical truth cannot come into the world except in the presence of vociferous and even violent opposition that is pretty amazing so that's what I mean I think that's behind Stephen Name a single prophet your ancestors never persecuted. They killed those who foretold the coming of the upright one, and now you have become his betrayers, his murderers. In spite of being given the law through angels, you have not kept it. They were infuriated when they heard this and and ground their teeth at him, but Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. Again, I, I, I drew this out one other time, but again, I want to come back to it. They were infuriated, so watch now. We're, we're, the question is, this is like a laboratory experiment. Okay, kids, where does this prophetic voice come from? And suddenly you have this thing happening here, which is social opposition is becoming 
unanimous and intense. And the prophetic voice, lo and behold, look, is arising in direct proportion to that social opposition. They became furious and ground their teeth, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is this? The truth shows up at exactly where the lie is being generated. So why is the biblical truth always having to come into the world at, at a place where it's opposed? Because it always is coming into the world at the place of the lie, which is always the sacrificial lie. It's always the, the lie of the scapegoating mob. Our violence is God's violence. And so there's this inevitable opposition. And they closed their ears and took him out and stoned him. What's this mean? It means that the sinfulness... You see, the revelation comes into the world under these circumstances, which means we can't be altogether... This is one of those things where I feel like Paul saying, well, no, and certainly not. I feel like I'm already out too far on this limb. But we, we want to say that we can't be totally contemptuous of those whose blindness and depravity made possible the revelation. Of course, it's our blindness and depravity in the final sorting of things, you see. But still in all, this is why when Van Beek says, no, we can recognize that our God is still the God of the of those who oppose us violently. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, alas for the world that such scandals exist. Such scandals indeed must always occur, but alas for the one who becomes a scandal. And then we're dealing with the same problem. It, 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 it will always have to have some kind of scandalous opposition. But alas for the one who... So, I want to read from Gerard to try to see if what he says sheds some light on this question about why it is that the biblical revelation, and especially the Christian revelation, in its most powerful form, that is to say, the form in which it is most it most powerfully deconstructs the lie that has that otherwise has us in its grip. Why it comes into the world in the face of opposition, and what the role of that opposition is. Gerard says, since the truth about violence will not abide in the community, but must inevitably be driven out, its only chance of being heard is when it is in the process of being driven out. The victim has therefore to reach out at the very moment when his mouth is being shut by violence. But this must not take place in the dark hallucinatory atmosphere. There must be witnesses who are clear-sighted enough to recount the event as it really happened. So, the point I'm... I, finally, the, the point is that the truth comes into the world, the gospel truth, the, the truth that will set us free, which is the truth that, that breaks the, the 
the binding power of the delusion that has us in its grip comes into the world only in the face of, of uh, vociferous or violent opposition. Now, I'm overstating this in a way. The truth comes by, you, you know, sitting and reading the Sermon on the Mount or thinking about it or, or, you know, feeling the love of our children. I mean, the truth comes in all of those ways. But in terms of the, the anthropological concern that I think is underneath Paul's writing here, is how does the gospel break in on the world? And it always breaks in at exactly the point at which the lie breaks in. The truth emerges at exactly the same spot where the lie and delusion is born. That is to say, in the situation where, as in Stephen's case, the crowd is growing furious. And the truth emerges right there. The gospel truth shatters, begins to shatter that myth-making process that is underway. So, one more thing from Girard and then to, to go to Simon Vey just for a second. Girard says, The Logos of love puts up no resistance. It always allows itself to be expelled by the Logos of violence but its expulsion is revealed in a more and more obvious fashion. And by the same process, the Logos of violence is revealed as what can only exist by expelling the true Logos and feeding upon it in one way or another. Now, Levinas correctly said that Simone Veit didn't really understand the Torah, but she did understand the cross. And she said something that I think is tremendously powerful. She said, there is a natural alliance between truth and affliction. And that's... And now, for you know, understand, for Simon Weil, affliction does not mean physical suffering. It, the, the key ingredient in affliction... It means physical suffering, among other things. But the, the essential ingredient in affliction for Simon Weil is social opprobrium, social contempt. Being a social outcast is essential. Without that, it's not affliction. It's suffering, but it's not affliction. And she says there's a natural alliance between truth and affliction. And that's why those of us who are not afflicted need this identification with Christ. Those who are afflicted have that identification given by the circumstances that they're in. And those who are those of us who are not uh, need to cultivate that identification, need to develop that identification in order that we may live closer to the truth. So she says there's a natural alliance between truth and affliction because both of them are mute suppliants eternally condemned to stand speechless in our presence. The village idiot... Simon Veig continues, The village idiot is as close to truth as a child prodigy. The one and the other are separated from it only by a wall, but the only way into truth is through dwelling a long time in a state of extreme and total humiliation. Notice the social element in that. Simon Veig has a tendency to, to, to treat this thing at the psychological level 
But if you look closely at her writings about there's always the social element. Humiliation is a social phenomenon. To experience truth, some of that has to happen. We can't experience the truth, the real gospel truth, the power, the revelatory power of the biblical truth requires that some social opprobrium be happening. Finally, let me go back, just to the last thing on Simon Weil, I want to go back to what I quoted earlier, which I've quoted several times because I think it's so powerful. She says, when a person turns away from God, he simply gives himself up to the law of gravity. Then he thinks he can decide and choose, but he is only a thing, a stone that falls. If we examine human society and souls closely enough and with real attention, we see that whenever the virtue of supernatural light is absent, everything is obedient to mechanical laws as blind and as exact as the laws of gravitation. Well, she says something later on in another context which echoes that, and it's about affliction and truth. She says... Just as truth is different from opinion, affliction is different from suffering. The man who falls into it, which is to say into affliction slash truth, is like a workman who gets caught up in a machine. Now, if you were to read that and then read the book of Jeremiah, say, it would be very, it would be a very interesting read. The one who falls into truth slash affliction, affliction here means social opprobrium, social contempt. To fall into that is like a workman who gets caught in a machine. And that's what the prophet, that's what happened to the prophet. And that was where their prophetic voice came from. They spoke the prophetic truth. That truth broke into the world in its full and final form at at the cross. So I would conclude or almost conclude with Leonard Cohen. He says in one of his songs, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in. And I would paraphrase Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Woe to those whose hammers, gavels, bombs, and bombast make the crack. And blessed are those who stand in the breach and let the light shine through. I was going to say what this means is, but I don't know what all this means. I think it means a lot more than I can can put my finger on right now. But... It certainly means that when we look at the world, as, as moving as it is to look at the world through the eyes of this fictional Yasel ben Yasel, it's very moving and, and in a way both morally and religiously edifying to look at the world through his eyes and to say, now I know that you are my God. For, he says, I know that you could never be the God of these horrible people that are doing this to me. That's 
both morally and religiously invigorating, but it leaves in place something that the revelation of the cross demolishes. The Torah still leaves that in place. And Paul is beginning to grapple with that when he says they rejected Christ, they being the Jews both at the time of the crucifixion and at the time of his preaching of the gospel, they rejected Christ, but thanks to their rejection, the the gospel revelation has broken in on us. So we cannot say that the biblical God is not their God. We cannot say what Yasel bin Yasel could say. As as violent, you see, the crucifixion was fully as violent, even though it was just happening to one person, it was fully as violent, more so, really, than anything that happened in the Warsaw Ghetto crushing. What happened in in that terrible thing was there were a lot of people involved. But in terms of the physical violence for each person, the crucifixion was right there. And all, you see, this is all that Paul is trying to do here with all of these metaphorical strategies and interpretive strategies is he's trying to somehow come to grips with the fact that the opposition has contributed to the revelation. Well, in the early chapters of Romans, Paul talked about the old eon and new eon the old eon being the eon of sin, death, and wrath, and the new eon being the eon of grace and faith. And in chapters 12, 13, 14, he begins talking about how to live in the new eon, how not to be caught up in the old eon, and how to conduct our lives in light of the Christian revelation. And there's a very famous passage in the second verse in chapter 12 of Romans about which very much has been said and written over the years and which has always been a a key focus of my own thinking about Romans. And so when I thought, oh, well, we're going to be talking about chapter 12 of Romans, I thought, well, we'll spend, ah, because it's me, I... We'll spend a whole lot of time on chapter on verse 2, chapter 12, and we will. Of course, in some ways, that's all we're going to talk about today. But in another way, I found myself learning new things, you know, finding out that there was a verse 1, for one thing, <laughs> and not going over it quite so quickly. For one, one reason I, I've gone over it quickly in recent years is because it has a sacrificial innuendo, even more than an innuendo, which... Which I, when uh, on you know the first several readings, I thought, well, this is, this is Paul slipping into sacrificial form uh, idioms because it was very natural. Those were the absolutely the idioms of first century Judaism, so it was absolutely understandable that he would use them. But on the other hand, I have now seen, I think, that something quite different is happening in this first verse. So here's how it goes. I urge you then, brothers, by God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, 
as worship proper to sensible people. So to offer one's body as a living sacrifice, and as far as I know, that's the only reference to living sacrifice that we have in the biblical canon. Now, I could be wrong about that, but I think, as far as I know, it's the only one we have. A living sacrifice, it reminded me of you know that story that I tell often enough because it was formative for me of visiting Howard Thurman and wringing my hands in about the year 1973 or 4 and saying, well, what am I going to do with my life? And here's what the world needs. And, and he, him shaking his head and saying, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who've come alive. I think he was talking about what Paul is talking about here living sacrifices. That is to say, living sacrifices in the sense that one tries to live in such a way that one's, that those who are touched by one's life are better able to live without sacrificial structures, the sacrificial structures of the old eon. Those structures, by the way, are being progressively weakened by the, by the revelation of the cross. So to, to, to live lives that are living sacrifices is a way of, of, in one's own life and in the life of whatever communities one participates in, to live in such a way that those old sacrifices aren't necessary. Living sacrifices. To, to accomplish... I would say in quotation marks, you know, anytime you're around Paul and you use the word accomplish, you risk falling into this uh, thing of works, you see, religious works, which he's trying to to to, um, to, to break the spell of. But uh, in any event, if we put quotation marks around that word, we could say to, to, to uh, offer oneself as a living sacrifice uh, is to accomplish by living faithfully to Christ what was accomplished in the old eon by sacrifices and scapegoating. In other words, to bring about the kind of reconciliation in the world and in one's own life and relationships that we used to have to resort to sacrifice and scapegoating in order to generate. The two, the two forms of reconciliation are quite different. Uh, but still in all, they are forms of reconciliation. So I was, uh, I was moved by that this time around, and I, and a number of things that come in later on in these chapters in Paul that I, that I think really echo this idea of, uh, living one's life as a living sacrifice. Nevertheless, verse 2 probably still has the great power in this chapter, and it is quite simple. Do not conform yourselves to this present eon, or in the more interesting formulation, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by a renewal of your whole way of thinking, by a renewal of your mind, so that you may discern what is God's will, what is good, acceptable to him, and perfect. So be not conformed. That's that that's if Paul now is is addressing the Romans, talking to them about how to live in the new eon. 
first thing he has to say to them is how not to live in the old one. And he doesn't give an elaborate uh, formula for this, but he says it in a very powerful term. And the warning is that it's implicit, of course, is that it's difficult not to conform to the eon in which one is living. It has an enormous power. We're surrounded by it. It's like it's like uh, a, a it's like some kind of um, thematic music that is always playing in the background of everything we do and say and think. It's always there, and so to not fall into step with it is very difficult. And I was reminded. This is a. <laughs> I was reminded of a of a passage in the a children's book, uh, Wrinkle in Time, Madeline Lingle's famous book, Wrinkle in Time. Now, see, I used to be able to get away with this because my children used to be younger than they are. And I used to be able to say, well, you see, I read these books to my children. <laughs> well, the truth is I still do. But uh, now they're bigger than I am. <laughs> but I still read books to them. Not just because I like it. And uh, as long as they'll tolerate it, I continue to do it. And we've read this book several times, but uh, I was reading it not too long ago to my daughter. And it remind there's a little passage in there. You may know the story. There's this horrible thing that is that is uh, you know dark force that is taking over parts of the universe, and and uh, these children travel through this wrinkle in time to this place where the center of this dark force resides. It's a planet called Kamazotes, and the dark force, of course, is this brain that's sitting up on a on a, a little uh, platform. An o- a slightly oversized brain, you know, completely cut off from any body. It's just a pulsing brain there. But it's uh, it's kind of nice in the story. Slightly oversized. <laughs> it's like uh, Lucifer, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, it has enormous power. And when it tries to, and when it begins to get people into its power, it it it, it emanates this sort of pulse that just runs through everything. It's almost impossible to break the spell. Anyway, there's a little passage in here where Meg, this girl, is trying to break the spell of this thing before it just envelops her. And she starts, she feels it about to take over. And she knows instinctively, actually her younger brother uh, showed her the way earlier in the, in, in the story. And now he's under the power of this thing. It's called it, I-T, this thing. He's the younger brother, Charles Wallace, is now under the power of it. But initially he resisted it by reciting the, the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> uh, anything. So she now realizes that this is the thing. You fall back on what you know and you begin to recite something that will be in another key, you know, another another theme or an, another pulse. You can't just stand it. See, this is the modern idea is, oh, well... I'll just be myself. <laughs> and it just rolls right over it. <laughs> and at least she knows she's a creation of Madeline Lingo, right? She knows that one has to fall back on, even in the New Testament, Jesus always quotes Scripture. When the devil tempts Jesus in the New Testament, he always quotes Scripture. That's Jesus, you know. Well, you have to fall back on something bigger than yourself. Well, she's a young girl, so she... And she hasn't memorized as much as her younger brother has. And so she's trying to get, fight this thing off. And she says, Georgie porgy pudding and pie. <laughs> Kissed the girls and made them cry. 
<laughs> and then it says, and then it says uh, that was no good. It was too easy for nursery rhymes to fall into the rhythm of it. Uh-huh. But isn't that... Now, think about the larger implications of that. Nursery rhymes, by and large, are how the modern world has tried to break the spell, thinking this was going to be... The, the two ways we've tried to do it. One is by just sort of some kind of rugged individualism, you know. I'm not going to do it. Cover, put, stick something in your ears. And the other is by reciting little flimsy nursery rhymes, thinking that that was enough. And, of course, it immediately... She says, a nursery rhyme... Uh, it was too easy for nursery rhymes to fall into the rhythm of it. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. That is... That's a mouthful, if you think about the modern world. So then it says, she didn't know the Gettysburg Address. How did the Declaration of Independence begin? She had memorized it only that winter, not because she was required to do so at school, but simply because she liked it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, she shouted, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then Charles Wallace, who's now the mouthpiece for it, because he's been temporarily... uh, uh, he's tempor- temporarily fallen under the control of it, says, but that's exactly what we have here on Kamazotes, complete equality. Everybody exactly alike. He s- says that, of course, in the monotone, monotone. Notice, by the way, there's quite a bit in that little first passage of the Declaration of Independence, and it, he seized on the word equality. There's other things, you know, endowed by their Creator, and so on. But he seizes on equality. And then it says, for a moment, Meg's brain reeled with confusion. Then came the moment of blazing truth. No, she cried triumphantly, like and equal are not the same thing. And so on. The story goes on. Well, I mention it because it's a little story, a children's story, about the power of the... When Paul talks about be not conformed to the to the pattern of this world he's talking about a very powerful one he's not talking about a pattern that is the 90s <laughs> or something like that you see he's talking about something that has an enormous capacity to adapt to different cultural moments and historical periods and so on uh, and comes in all sizes and shapes and so he's talking about moving out of something much larger than just one, some tiny little version of it. Because I want to come back to this question, I want to stop for a moment here on this on this word equality and how it causes Meg a certain causes her brain uh, to reel for a moment. I think it has caused ours to reel uh, as well. I was reminded of you'll wonder why uh, of something. Chesterton wrote a book on Chaucer. Which is, as with all of Chesterton's book, it's, books, it's very good and very funny, uh, and very insightful. And one of the things, and I haven't read it in years and years, and I only couldn't even find it yesterday when I thought, but one of the things he says in there was, um, that after the, the Norman Conquest, the English language was sufficiently Frenchified so that it could be used as a vehicle for great literature. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a kind of reverse of that, which is what made me think of that. And the reverse of it is that between the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, the West more or less self-consciously redefined itself 
in secular rather than biblical terms. The effect was to cut off what we today so glibly call our values from the biblical tradition that brought them into existence. And one of one of the changes, you know, we had to ring the changes on these various things that had biblical uh, reverberations. And so the Renaissance and Enlightenment rang, rang the changes on all of these so that they would be translated into, into terms that had possibly more classical echo structures, but fewer of the biblical ones. And one of the things that comes out, of course, is equality uh, very powerfully in the Enlightenment. Well, the equality is the secularized, sterilized, diminished version of what in the biblical tradition is brotherhood. Now, I realize brotherhood's got a gender problem, which is always awkward these days, but it's easy enough to understand. That's a, it's a bigger category. Brotherhood's a bigger category, richer, deeper category. And equality is the, is the diminishment of that, uh, a diminishment that was made necessary if the term were, if the idea was to be shorn of its biblical reverberations. Equality, by the way, is what all ancient cultures feared like the plague. It was the plague. That's what all ancient religious structures exist. Uh, to. One of the things they exist to do is to eliminate equality because equality is the breeding ground for strife. The ancients understood that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have more of something that looks an awful lot like equality. We certainly don't want to to uh, tolerate structures that are unjust. Okay, so I'm not trying to say any kind of. Uh, uh, I'm not trying to revive inequality. But because we haven't understand un- understood the deeper significance of the processes that that, that we're caught up in, uh, we we make these naive assumptions somehow. That, and so we see a world in which. Uh, there, there's a little bit of strife going on, and we immediately think that the strife is generated by the by the inequality of the situation, and we create more equality, and there's more strife. And I, again, I think Gerard's extremely helpful on this, and uh, when when he says sameness creates conflict, and so on. So I don't, this is no time to get into that, and I had total a total aside in terms of what Paul is talking about here. Well, maybe not a total aside, because he is talking about uh, brotherhood. I mentioned there are two ways I think the modern world has tried to has tried to uh, ward off this the pulse of the uh, of the ethos that we're surrounded by. The two, I think, both naive ways. One is is the idea that some of these little nursery rhymes are powerful enough to do it, and of course they become immediately enveloped as one of the light motifs in the larger thing very quickly. And the other is the idea of some kind of sturdy individualism that will be powerful enough to withstand these forces. And I always like the work of Eric Neumann. He's, he's a Jungian who did, I think, some very interesting work and who died too early and uh, who I think was onto some things. I think I, I've my my Jungian days are over but um, 
such that they were. But nevertheless, there are some things in that world that I think are still helpful. So, Neumann wrote this book called New Eth- uh, Depth Psychology and New Ethic, in which he was trying to look at the question that Paul raises in, in Romans 12.2. How do we keep from being enveloped in this thing? And he saw it in terms of the, per- of the individual person who could withstand this. And he said some interesting things. You see, the other thing that happened during, the other thing that happened during the Enlightenment was that thing that we divided the world up into individual versus the collective, which is a false dichotomy. Both of those terms are, are, uh, diminished versions of something bigger and more rich than either of them. But nevertheless, that's, that's what happened. So we had, so we created this idea of the individual is the one, is, is the alternative to the collective. And as 20th century rolled on, it became ever clearer that the collective was the problem. And so Neumann says, the person, the, the, he says in the old ethic, obedience to the law was necessary. He's very Pauline in that regard. In the new ethic, he says, not being contagious is essential. And I think that's pretty Pauline. That's pretty Pauline. Not being contagious. The question, of course, is can you not be contagious with respect to something without being contagious with respect to something else? In other words, can you just... For Paul, you see, it, in order not to be in the old eon, he had to be in Christ. Uh, so there's a form of contagion that Paul is experiencing that is the body of Christ, the communion of saints, and so on. Uh, but nevertheless, there's something still Pauline about Neumann's insight. And he says, the personality which has found its center and achieved its ethical autonomy constitutes a rallying point and a bulwark for the collective. It is a focus of stillness amid the flux of phenomena, and the waves of collectivism and the mass psyche will break against it in vain. So there's this heroic ideal. It's almost it's almost something out of Anne Rand or something. You know, one, it's it's more nuanced than that. But this this idea of the individual becomes so sturdy uh, and autonomous that he can withstand these forces. And Neumann says, in the catastrophes of psycho- psychic inundation, which characterize periods of violent collective upheaval, such a personality forms a breakwater against mass epidemics and the flood of events by which they are accompanied. And again, I think that's that's close to what Paul is talking about, but Paul would not leave it to the individual, but le- but leave it to this to this uh, community of people who are mutually inspired and mutually inspiring with regard to another form of contagion. But then Neumann, I think, makes the same mistake that Jung makes, and it's not a simple mistake, Is pro- so I'm, I'm, I'm being too simplistic when I say this. Um, but Neumann says such personalities have their roots in the unconscious. And I think uh, that term has been, it's not altogether one way or another, but I think it has been more confusing than it has been clarifying. The biblical tradition says such personalities have their roots in God. And even Neumann 
closes his little discussion of this by allowing us how the Old Testament prophets, when disaster came, were able to withstand it. So his own his own example, the, the example he uses, really, uh, is is that, and I think properly so. I wanted to get into that because in verse 4, chapter 12, Paul begins talking about the community that is sustaining, awakening and sustaining uh, this way of living as a living sacrifice. And he says, Just as we have many members in one body and all of the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He's talking about the church, of course, but the church is the anthropological laboratory. And so we're all part, so this is this a very major metaphor for Paul, the, the body of Christ. We are all members of this body, each with a different gift, and each gift given according to grace, gifts of prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, uh, philanthropy, leadership, and so on and so forth. And he, he runs through that litany, and then he says, be devoted to one another with brotherly love, with brotherly love. And then comes another description of what it means to live as a living sacrifice. That is to say, to live in such a way, in such a way that oneself and one's community is more likely, more able to live without the sacrificial resources that the cross is in the process of undermining. So he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Mourn with those who are mourning. Think in harmony with one another. Put aside haughty thoughts and associate with the lowly. Do not become wise in your own estimation. Repay no one evil for evil. Take thought of what is noble in the sight of all human beings. There's a strong element in all of this of breaking down the reciprocity. First thing you have to do in in, in order to be a, a reconciling force in in the world, and what has to be reconciled, by the way, is 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 religious as well as social. And part of being a reconciler in the world, first thing to do is to break down the mechanistic, almost mechanistic reciprocity of antagonism, an eye for an eye, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of that in here. Bless those who persecute you, and uh, repay no one evil for evil. Take no revenge. And then this one, which I'll come back to. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And we think, I think, if he'd only stop there. He's quoting Psalm 25. And so he quotes it in 25, the 21st verse of Psalm 25. So he quotes it in its entirety. And I was sort of hoping he would stop before he got to the last verse. The last verse is this. In, so, if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. <laughs> and my initial reaction was, well, let's just mark that up to a little slippage. The Old Testament thing was quoted in its entirety, and so. But I don't. I still my ten, my my preference is always to um, 
to submit to these texts, and I think we can do it even with this one. But the next, but I'll come back to that later. The next verse is, "Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." This is really the 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 recipe. Oh, the, the overcoming evil with good, conquering hate with love. Now. A lot. This is ethics, or what passes for ethics. We we think of it as ethics, often dealt with in the commentaries as, as Pauline ethics. But Nigran makes the interesting point, and that is that ethics in the usual Greek sense of the term are completely foreign to Paul. And so we, 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 we underestimate what Paul is doing if we think of this as simply a lot of rules. Let's remember what Paul has said about rules. You see, he's not laying down a few now that he's got our attention. Uh, he's he's exhorting, he's admonishing, you see, but he's not laying down rules, and it's important. And Nigran makes a very strong point of that. He says, first of all, he says, this is the ethics of the mind. You know, Paul says you have to have a new mind. It's not a question of obeying rules. So that one's behavior is not the behavior of one who's inhabiting the same universe, as before. There's a passage in Buber's I and Thou that parallels this, just comes to my mind right now, where Buber says, uh, if a person has been concerned about his own well-being and his prestige and his wealth, and he, and he suddenly transfers that concern to God, it won't do him a bit of good. Because it, it doesn't transfer that way. You have to come out of that world that is configured around prestige and self-reference and, and all the rest of it into a world that's other than that. For Paul, one has to die to sin. And the last two points that Niger makes uh, are that, one, Paul's ethics is a, is a social ethics, not an individual ethics. It has to do with the community. He, Paul's anthropology is very realistic anthropology. He doesn't have some romantic idea. I mean, he's living 1,600 years, more than that, before the romantics came on the scene. Uh, So he doesn't have a romantic idea. It's grounded in social life. As I tried to mention when we talked about his discussion of the body and the flesh. And finally, Nigren says, Paul's ethics are not egalitarian ethics. They are based on brotherhood, precisely the point I tried to make earlier about the difference between those two things. Chapter, I want to go to chapter 14, where there's this kind of practical discussion, but I think it's tremendously important for our world today, perhaps more so than even that important material in the first of chapter 12. And it has to do with dietary laws, believe it or not. And Paul is writing to a community in which the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians were at odds with each other over whether or not, to what extent, to adhere to the Jewish dietary laws, which were so important to first century Judaism. And Paul, interestingly, one would have guessed perhaps, because of how strong Paul was in Galatians and elsewhere, one would have guessed that Paul would have come down forcefully against these dietary laws. But it is extremely interesting to me that he does not do that. He doesn't come down on one side or the other of the controversy. 
So I want to go through this and then draw the much, much larger cultural implications that are, that are in this. He says in chapter 14, One may be convinced that one may eat anything, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. He's taught, now, he uses this idea of the weak in faith and the strong in faith. And only vegetables mean very scrupulous about the dietary laws, which have to do with uh, eating certain flesh that's of certain animals and flesh that hasn't been treated in certain ways, kosher and so on. One may be convinced that one may eat anything, but the one who is weak eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats not despise the one who abstains, let the one who abstains not pass judgment on the one on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So the first thing we have to do is just say, fine. Let everybody, if you, if you feel that's what you should do, do. And then he goes on to say, one person regards one day as more important than the other, yet another regards every day as the same. Each one, however, should be fully convinced of this in his own mind. Here's the the... Uh, upshot of it, of this argument about the dietary laws, is this. So let us no longer pass judgment on one another. Mark rather this decision. Never to put a stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. So this, by the way, this is the, this is in one verse, 1413. This is in one verse, the old and the new eon. The, the old ethic and new ethic. The old ethic is to know what's right and make a judgment and condemn the wrongdoer. So he says, let us no longer pass judgment on one another. Now here's the new ethic. Never put a stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. And then he says in the next verse, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I know and am convinced that nothing is unclean in itself, but for the one who considers something to be unclean, that becomes so for him. In other words, you can't, if you think it might be, you better abstain. And it's, and, and it's valid and proper to abstain if you think it is. If your brother is indeed distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer conducting yourself in love. Let not the food you eat ruin such a one for whom Christ died. In verse 20, again, he combines the old and new ethic. Do not demolish the work of God because of food. All things are indeed clean, but it is wrong for a human being to eat something that creates a stumbling block for another. Now notice what the ethic is now. The ethic, once we move outside of the, of the sacrificial world, we have to be much more attuned, much more graceful, to say it in a positive sense, and much more careful to say it in a, in a more uh, cautious sense, much more careful about how we live because we can't, we, since we don't have the sacrificial wherewithal for solving some of those social problems, we have to behave in ways that don't give rise to them. You see what I mean? And so we don't want to scandalize one another. So, all things are indeed clean, but it is wrong for a human being to eat something that creates a stumbling block for another. 
It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to trip, to stumble, or to be weakened. Now, for Paul, faith is a gift, and the strength of one's faith is likewise a gift. And those whose faith is strong have no right to consider themselves either morally or religiously superior to those whose faith is weaker. 